The U.S. Patent and Trademark Office is taking a big step to reduce cybersecurity risks from its employees, often the winkest cyber link. USPTO will be among the first agencies to implement what's known as a Secure Access Service Edge Architecture, or SASE. Jamie Holcomb is the Chief Information Officer at USPTO, and Bo Hutto is the Vice President of Federal at Netscope. They tell Executive Editor Jason Miller about why SASE will accelerate USPTO's journey to zero trust, and first you hear from Holcomb. The reason SASE is so important to us, I think it's the first foundational piece of the zero trust architecture that we can actually act upon. So with the executive order and zero trust architecture, the fact is, is that it's not one product. It's more of a philosophy. And so I like SASE as that architectural philosophy to ensure that we can identify users and devices and apply the policy-based security controls, delivering that secure access the applications and ensuring that our data is secure. Netscope is providing us the first time that we can really concentrate on that architecture and the ability to actually go into it and use products, not just one product, but products in that philosophy for ensuring SASE and zero trust. So you talk about foundational to zero trust. So let's describe what SASE is. When, when people have heard about it, we know a couple things about it. It eliminates the perimeter-based appliances, legacy solutions. It's really a something that's it's cloud-based and what? So give me a sense, and then we'll bring Bo in to talk more specifics. But from your perspective, from where PTO views it, how are you going to use it? Well, I like it because the last word, the E, is the edge. And I've been in telecom since I was uh, a little kid. And the conversation or the philosophical bent, the, the way you can have religion, is either the smarts are in the network or the smarts are on the edge. And the fact of the matter is, I always thought that the smarts should be on the edge and let the network just route and transmit the traffic. That doesn't mean to say you can't have smarts within the network. I just think your smarts need to be, need to be primarily at the edge and you let the network deliver as much volume as it can. So at the edge, what we're talking about is the identification of users, the identification of devices, and all the things in between, the OSI layers, right, to put them all together in a secure way. Netscope, the product, actually provides the ability for that architecture, but there's a lot of other things that you need to plug and play in order to be that secure. So that's what the edge means to me, going out and securing not just one part, but all the parts in an architecture. And Bo, jump in here, because when we talk talk about SASE and your product, I'm sure, is maybe, uh, I'll call it similar, if you will. SASE is is, is a well-known topic across or uh, technology kind of understanding across the community. But how does it work and and what's the impact of using this on, on agencies like PTO and others? If you think about what SASE is, SASE is an architecture, right? Jamie alluded to, and, and basically it's it's not necessarily a product, right? Um, Gartner, as Gartner defines SSE, that that magic quadrant was released this last winter. And that is really the security component, that foundational security component as Gartner would define it as well, to SASE. And then SASE is the architecture. So if you think about what Netscope does massively different or what you should be looking for in 
a SSC SASE type of solution, it really is single pass architecture where you have a single platform that can deliver all of the controls that inherently have been provided on premise in the past. And when you're thinking about that, you're thinking about what we've built silos of over the last 25 years on prem. And now all of our data is really moved out to the cloud in a significant way. So that's what the SASE architecture is really bringing to bear is a control vector for your data, whether it's living and breathing on prem or it's now moved out to cloud services. I think that's a great explanation because we hear architecture and people's eyes start to glaze over and the they feel like, oh no, or an architecture discussion. But what it's, it's doing is driving the rules, the, the, the policies, the user and, and device policies to the edge. So when Jamie Holcomb wants to log on from a Starbucks coffee shop, that sassy will do what? And maybe ask Bo to start and then I can we can talk more broadly for Jamie. So Jamie, Jamie hit on the OSI layers, right? And as we refer to um, what we do and what a single pass architecture allows you to do is really there's that last layer, layer eight, that is the context layer. And being able to now apply all of the knowledge that you have of the user, the in-device, the location, the risk or the value of the data that's being accessed and being able to, in real time, deliver actually access to that in a least privileged kind of way so that the user still has the ability to go out and access that data likely. But it might be in very different form factors than they might have if they're in a very controlled and trusted environment. Let's say working from a home office on a government furnished, you know, piece of equipment and, you know, using a trusted network versus being in that coffee shop. And you still may need access to that data, but at the same time, you may not have any read, write, or, and and a lot of privileges may be um, excluded from that access. Jamie, now let's take it down to the PTO level, but as you see this gets implemented and as you move toward implementation, What's the impact you think it's going to have on PTO beyond the fact it's going to improve your cybersecurity, it's going to get you towards zero trust? What's what's the user impact? It should have no effect and it should be more secure. But let's just address the thing you said that really got in my craw. If my guys are doing a Starbucks and they're actually examining patents, our survey says, no, that does not happen. We do not allow that. And so because of that, you have to have that security paradigm. It's not only the secure back end, but it's also the secure front end. And what that front end includes is cyber hygiene. So we got to make sure that we get away from the fact of untrusted networks. And when we implement this architecture, if it does go through as we intend, then it will find out that it's going over a Wi-Fi that is not trusted and cut you off right away. The session will not complete. So it does make it more secure. Now, saying that too, when I look at the user experience, most of our applications are not examined on a mobile phone. However, our applicants might check the status of their examination, whether it be trademarks and or patents on their mobile phone device. Like, where am I? What do I have to do? Do I have to call my paralegal and make sure we're doing the right things? 
So in that regard, we're trying to make the Starbucks experience that you're talking about with status secure because we don't want to give that status to the nefarious individuals who are trying to steal that intellectual property. So when you say that, it is really near and dear to my heart about what we protect and how we protect it. Jamie Holcomb is the Chief Information Officer at the U.S. Patent and Trademark Office, and Bo Hutto is the Vice President of Federal at Netscope. Speaking with Federal News Network's Jason Miller, check out his story at federalnewsnetwork.com. Hello, I'm WIPA CEO Shane Canfield, and thank you for joining us on another episode of Lessons in Leadership. I'm honored to be joined by Angie Bailey, founder and CEO of Ananda Life. Angie has a remarkable career in public service, beginning as a GS2 clerk typist with the Social Security Administration. And over the next 40 years, Angie steadily worked her way up through the government, ultimately becoming the Chief Human Capital Officer at the Department of Homeland Security. She's been recognized with presidential rank awards by two administrations for leadership, innovation, dedication, and commitment to the country. Angie, thank you for joining us. Thank you, Shane. What a pleasure to be here. Angie, you've made quite a name for yourself as a leader in the federal workforce. Who was the first person you remember looking up to as a leader? And what about them inspired you? You know, I often think about this because, you know, sometimes we think of the people that we look up to the most as being somebody that throughout our career has, you know, been at the highest levels and all. But, you know, I've got to go back to honestly, whenever I was 10 years old, and uh, I remember I really wanted to play Little League baseball on a boys team. I was the only girl. And interestingly, it was the women who would keep saying to me that, no, I couldn't play. And then one day, whenever I was there to sign up yet again, uh, there was this guy, his name was Delbert Beiser. And uh, I remember he had like red hair and he had wadded tobacco in his mouth and greasy overhauls and everything. And he said, you know, I'll take her, I'll take her on my team. And, you know, just looking back on that, there's so many leadership lessons and things that I just really admire about him. And actually, I thought about throughout my entire career, he took a chance on somebody he didn't know. He um, put aside whatever conscious or unconscious biases that he might have had about having a girl on a team. He treated me the same, Uh, whether, you know, if I wasn't performing, I got benched just like the boys. I got no special treatment. and, and, And he was just really honest with me and he just included me in everything. And so looking back on it, you know, really, it was Delbert Beiser, our local mechanic in our little small village that was I think my inspiration for going on to, I hope, become the leader, um, you know, that that I wanted to be. I'd say half of the guests on this podcast have had similar stories where they reach back to either childhood or young adulthood. And I I think as leaders, it's really incumbent upon us to keep that in mind, that that what we say and do, especially in the younger ages, really can have a lifelong impact. How would you describe your leadership style and and how's that developed over time? I would say that the one word that describes my leadership style is that I care. Um, I guess that's more than one word, but I care. Uh, I've always cared about the mission. I've always cared about the people. I've always cared, you know, about making sure that that they had what they needed or that they were developing the way, uh, you know, that they aspired to develop. And I tried to take this approach of not treating people the way I wanted to be treated, but instead treat people the way they wanted, they want to be treated. And I think that that really kind of developed over my career. You know, I started out just like most 
leaders do where it's very results driven. It's all about the bottom line. You need to make sure that you get everything accomplished because, you know, that's what everybody's looking for, the goals, the metrics, et cetera. But I think as you mature and you go along, you start to, to your point, you draw back on those early childhood days or early adult young, you know, whenever you're a young adult and you say, you know, I think that there's a little bit more to this than just the bottom line. And so over time, I really began to, I, I think, see a much bigger picture and the entire ecosystem, if you will, and how the people themselves fit into all of this. And that ultimately, at the end of the day, it was all about the people. And so, I, you know, I think my, my maturity allowed me to then shift and focus more on the people than, than so much on results and bottom line. You've been recognized with two presidential rank awards two different administrations. You founded your own company. Tell us a little bit more about your background from the beginning and and how did that lead you to where you are today? Well, you know, it's kind of interesting, like you said, that I started out as a GS2, Social Security Administration. I mean, what I really wanted to be was a criminal prosecuting attorney. That was absolutely my dream. I sometimes joke and say what I really wanted to be was a mafia don, but that wasn't going to work out. So, you know, had to be a criminal prosecuting attorney. But, you know, I had to get a job to pay for college. I, you know, it wasn't in the cards that I was going to be able to go to college without a job. So I applied at the Social Security Administration, or I'm sorry, at the unemployment office, and lo and behold, I got a job at Social Security. I didn't even know it was federal, to be honest. Uh, From there, I went to the Department of Defense, and I found this, this career field called labor and employee relations. And honestly, it was as close as I was going to get to being a criminal prosecuting attorney. I didn't go on to be a, a criminal prosecuting attorney, but I went on courtesy of the Department of Defense to get both my bachelor's and my master's in leadership, because the whole study of leadership, I just find incredibly fascinating. Um, you know, from hi- historical to current uh, current times, I just, it's just something that's just really fascinated me. And so I just, I would say I'm a lifelong learner of leadership. And then I would say some of the other things that got me maybe where I am today is I never really said no to anything. If people asked me to take on a new challenge, even if I wasn't sure I was going to be successful at it, I would say, you know what, not sure this is going to work out, but more than happy to give it a try. And it always worked out. But I think giving things a try and just not saying no to opportunities is what really led from one position to the next. I feel like I was always rewarded for just stepping in or stepping up and taking on the challenges that sometimes no one else wanted to do. Angie, thanks so much for joining us today. Oh, thank you, Shane. It's such a pleasure. I I really appreciate you giving me this opportunity. Thank you. This has been the Lessons in Leadership podcast. I'm CEO of WEPA, Shane Canfield. Looking forward to talking to you next time. This episode is brought to you by Zelle. Whenever you're sending money through an app or online, it's important to do it safely. Here are a few helpful tips. First, always make sure you know and trust the person you are sending money to. Second, confirm you have entered their contact details correctly. And finally, if you don't trust the person or your recipient is rushing you to send money right away, think twice before sending money through an app or online. Grab a 30-day free trial of Live by Live Plus and you'll get unlimited skips, commercial-free music, and all of the podcasts and live streaming events you can handle. Visit livexlive.com slash podcast one to learn more and start your free trial.